Our state-by-state -state look at coronavirus trends is more encouraging this Sunday. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. The wildfires that have devastated parts of Australia. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future at the intersection of self, community, and planet. We live in uncertain times, a powerful moment of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Welcome to the Alt Normal episode 11. We are on episode 11 today, and I'm sitting here with Sara Agafranti. I'm super excited to have this conversation, and I'm the host, Tiffany Wen. And for those of you who are new to the show, um, welcome, super excited to have you. And for those of you who are, you know, regulars or, you know, tuning in again, really appreciate all the support. If you find this conversation lighting you up at any point, please show us the love and give us a subscribe, a share or a view as we really want to spread these stories and messages far and wide. So, why we're here today for The Alt Normal. So, The Alt Normal is a show that centers diversity as a beautiful and, I believe, absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that we're living in right now. How might we reframe the new normal that was handed to us as a crisis and actually create an alt-normal or an alternative reality that we can all choose to remake together in our diversity for a more resilient and healthier culture. So in this grave crisis of systems collapse, racial injustice, global economic disaster, all the other things, dot, 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 lies this amazing opportunity for shifting in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and also the planet. So I like to think of this as a time where sort of the old systems and ways of doing things are dying out and a new sort of story is emerging. So what we really need is that new story for humanity that includes diverse voices and identities and leaning into that complexity of who we are, not simply what we perceive as comfortable or even quote unquote normal. So with that, I want to share a big thank you to Zest, Zest Ubud in Bali, a plant-based restaurant that is hosting this conversation today. So they have this mission powered by plants made for people. So even though they make vegan food really delicious and fun, they also really believe in bringing people together, conversations like this together. And we're so grateful that, yeah, they're part of this project. So with that, I would love to introduce our guest today, <laughs> Sara Agafranti. So Sara supports women to discover their deepest values so they can live a fulfilling and impactful life. As a child of Baha'i refugees from Iran, she was raised with the values of service and acceptance of all. But from childhood to motherhood, she would have to move through some painful experiences and make some hard choices to make these values her own. 
Her experience includes working as a registered nurse for 10 years and earning a master's of public health. Her profession took her all over the world from remote fly-in camps in northern Canada, relief work in Haiti and the Philippines, and finally travel nursing in California. After 10 years at the bedside, she was inspired to co-found Do It For The Love with her husband, musician Michael Franti. Together, their work is to use the power of music to inspire hope in those facing life-threatening illnesses and severe challenges. She's always had an entrepreneurial spirit. By the age of 10, she had established a popular car washing and dog walking service in her neighborhood. Most recently, her and Michael have launched a clothing line called Stay Human and expanded their wellness hotel, Soulshine Bali, where together they host their annual music and yoga soul rocker retreats. She is dedicated to making a positive impact in the lives of others and has come to understand the hard way that it's only by knowing and honoring herself that she can make the greatest difference. So super grateful to have Sara on the show Thanks today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and really excited to touch on sort of everything that you do. There's definitely a through line, but mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot to this story. So I would love to start this conversation with sort of the, the topic of identity. I love to start these conversations centering on how you claim your identity, how you talk about it. You did this beautiful speech at the 2019 Women's March in Napa. You started by sharing, quote, I am first-generation Canadian and currently in the middle of navigating this maze-like immigration system here in the United States. I'm the child of two people who 37 years ago were seeking asylum. So yeah, I would love for you to just start there. Tell us you know, where you come from and what it was like growing up to parents who, I guess, fled persecution. Yeah. 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 So, so I was born in Canada. My parents are from Iran, as you mentioned. I've always identified myself as Canadian, although I'm very attached to my Persian roots and traditions. And so uh, it was always interesting. I, I feel like my story is not unique. I, when I speak to other people who are first generation Canadian or American or childs of um, immigrant parents, refugee parents, they are always caught in this in-between of their parents trying to navigate their own journey of what of this new culture do we embrace? Do we integrate? Do we teach into our children? And what from the the culture that they were raised in do they also integrate into into their children's lives? And and I feel that I'm a mom too now, and I have a son who's two, and I think about that too. Like, what of my own learnings do I teach him, and what do I allow him to bring into his life? In that sense, I've always had this worldly view which I feel very lucky to have. Like I always knew that the world was bigger than just the city that I was in or my community because I grew up having to call my grandparents in Iran and it was like a dollar 99 a minute. You'd call the operator and the operator had to literally like plug it in. It's like 1990, you know, and they had to like move the switches and there was the delay and there was the echo and you knew your grandparents were somewhere far away. Maybe you didn't know where it was, but you knew that there was a time difference and you couldn't see them right now. And there was a reason there was war. And so just that gave me a different perspective in the world growing up. But it also allowed me to have empathy. And I and that's what I was referring to in my speech at the Women's March. At the time in America, the, the big headlines in the news, and I feel like every day we have something new in the headlines, but it was that they were locking up families and separating children from their parents. And there's 
over 2,500 children who are still, un they don't know who their parents are. They were separated. It was never documented. It's terrible. And that was the big thing. And so I have empathy for those, for families who are looking for a better life whether it's economic opportunity or just safety, security, whatever it is, I, I understand the motivation. And so when people say things like you would never put your family at risk to escape somewhere for looking for a better life, unless it was really necessary. Like, I believe that I understand that. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, you were one, right. When your parents, um, immigrated to Canada, I was born in Canada. You were born in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you can jog your memory back to childhood or growing up in Canada. I don't know what part of Canada you were raised in, but did you grow up like knowing, ah, I'm a person of color and I'm different and that therefore like that's shaping me in some way or yeah. was it just very normal to be diverse? Well, Canada is a really cool country. I mean, there's systemic racism exists. The history of Canada is a dark history as many colonized countries have. But Canada is also a mosaic. It's not a melting pot. And so there was a lot of diversity. There were kids from different parts of the world around me or in my neighborhood where we lived in Calgary. You know, there was a lot of immigrant families. But I did know I was different because I never, my parents always worked really hard so that we always felt like we belonged and that was really important to them. But we had different traditions and different cultures. And when I would go to my, when my friends would come over, my parents would speak to me in Farsi and I'd answer back in English, you know, and we didn't celebrate Christmas and because I'm Baha'i. And so we didn't get like all the gifts on Christmas and all your friends in school would be talking about it. But my parents worked really hard to instill a sense of pride in us that different is important and different is valuable and different is beautiful. And so I never... As a kid, maybe you feel sorry for yourself because maybe you didn't get like the big pile of gifts. And sometimes my parents would feel bad and get us like a Walkman. I remember I got a Walkman one year for Christmas. I had something to show at school. But I also felt really proud to be like, you know what? I don't do that. Like I'm not celebrating Easter because it's not because we believe in the Easter bunny. It's because, you know, it's like... Easter is related to this, to religion. And, and, and I come from a, from a faith that believes that all religions come from one God. So it wasn't a discrimination thing. It just wasn't part of our practice and tradition. And so my parents taught me to, um, be proud of my differences. And that was really important and significant. And it helped me get through times because I did get bullied sometimes in school and it wasn't often, but there's a, there's a time that I speak to where I was on the school bus and there was an older boy that was bullying me and, and she'd be teasing me. And, he, and you know, on the, on the school bus, it's like the young kids are in the front. And then as you go back, it's like the older kids. So he's yelling back from the back of the bus and, and making fun of me. And he called me brown cow across the bus. And like, you know, I, I always did well in school. I followed all the rules. I am not the person, even now at 36, I'm not the person who's like, break the rules and apologize later. I'm like, just don't break the rules. Like it makes my palms sweat even just saying that expression. And so I was like really upset when, when this state, when he like yelled these words across the bus, it really hurt me because I thought, you know, I'm going, I'm going above and beyond to make my parents proud, make my teachers proud, make the people around me know that I'm where I belong. I deserve to be here. My family deserves to be here. The bus got really quiet because we were like, <laughs> it was like he yelled across the bus. And from, from the middle of the bus, I like yelled back at him. And I'm like, well, at least brown cows make chocolate milk. <laughs> and it was the best thing that I could think of. But when I think about it now, like I actually had to do, I did this meditation and, and it brought me to that moment 
not, I didn't even realize how significant it was for me now. And I think about it, I'm like, gosh, I'm like, I really understood the importance of being different, even at that age. And I have to give my parents credit for that. There was no one else who taught me at the age of 12 more than my parents to be proud of my differences and, and who I was. And I was standing up for myself and I was standing up for every kid on that bus who was different, whether it was the color of their skin or the language they spoke or what they ate for lunch that day, you know? Like I grew up at a time where pita bread was really weird. Like now everybody's like, you know, looking for the pita bread. If you brought pita bread to school, you were weird, you know? So, so yeah, so I carry that moment and it, it, it defined it defined my path. And, and I think that's why service was always a big part of my family too. And so in my service, as I look back at all the decisions I've made, it's to bring um, justice to, to the unjust situations or to make people feel significant as a nurse. Your, your ultimate job is to make people feel significant. In our nonprofit, we send people who are dying to live shows, you know, it's to acknowledge their journey and, and to say like, we see you for what you're going through. We see the caregivers for what they're going through when we host retreats, you know, so, um, it was an important time, you know? Wow. It's, um, <laughs> Oh, it's just, I totally, that, that story of being on that bus, you know, I've had so many crazy things done to me on school buses too. So I kind of went back in time just now with you. And, um, yeah, it's really beautiful to, to hear that you, you really stood for that difference, even when it, the, the going got really hard. Yeah. Cause you're young, you know, when yeah. you're young, sometimes you don't have the tools yet or the role models, but it seemed like you, that was very much the bedrock of how you navigated the world. Yeah. So you mentioned about your nursing experience and I want to move into that part of your world and you chose to enter this profession of nursing, which took you all over the world to different mm -hmm. countries and different formats with different types of patients. I'm sure I want to ask you what inspired you originally to walk the path for the time that you did as a nurse. Yeah. Well, I found a journal from first grade and it said I wanted to be a nurse. And then I never wanted to be a nurse after that. Like, I didn't even realize I wrote that. My mom is actually a registered nurse. And I saw how hard she worked. You know, I saw her shift work and I got to see her life. And so service has always been important to me. And I always wanted to give back in my work. And so I went through the same journey that people go through of like discovering what do I really want to do. And so I thought I wanted to be a physiotherapist and work with people with acquired brain injury. And that was because I did some part-time work while I was in school doing my undergrad, working with people living with disabilities. But then in Canada, the, the physiotherapy program became a grad graduate degree and I was doing applied sciences like organic chemistry and, and physics and I was just I hated it I'd cry every night and I'm like why am I studying this stuff it doesn't make any sense and my mom was actually the one who suggested she said why don't you finish your degree in nursing so that you have a fallback which is very Persian to have a fallback <laughs> she's like so that you have a fallback and then you can go do your physiotherapy program, or if you don't want to, you have a great job that can you can do anything with. And so with a little bit of resistance, I I did it. I applied and I got into a couple of nursing programs and I and I applied to the one where I could transfer most of my courses into. And again, all through nursing school, I was really resistant to the idea of actually working as a nurse until my last, probably my last like four months, to be honest. And I did some, I did a final practicum. And I was able to really see the connection that I was able to make with patients. 
it's just, it's been so cool. It's such a privilege. I've, I've seen that. I feel like it's one of the best jobs you could ever have. It's a profession. It's a lifestyle. I'm not bedside nursing anymore, but I feel like it's made me who I am today. Absolutely. And I'll forever identify as a nurse. But yeah, it was almost like an accident a little bit. It wasn't something that I had set the intention and had my heart set on. And then when I fell into it and I was doing the work, um, my passion grew grew for the job. And I'm a huge advocate for nurses. And I do miss, I do miss bedside nursing. People ask me, do you miss it? And I do. So what do you miss about bedside <clears throat> nursing? I miss the, I miss the human connection. I feel like when I think back at the greatest moments that I had as a nurse, it was when, because you, I worked as an ER nurse, I worked as an acute med surge nurse. So you had really sick people, um, with different conditions like lung cancer, um, bowel cancer, vascular disease, like complications and diabetes. And then from there I moved to the emergency room and you have people who are coming who are afraid and they don't know if they're going to live. They don't know what's going to happen. They have pain. They have uncertainty. They have family dynamics they're trying to manage. They have history. They have traumas that they're bringing into these situations. And your job as a nurse, ultimately, is every healthcare provider. But as a nurse, you're the one that's there for half the day, 12 hours, you know, multiple days on end. Your job is the one to make them feel safe, to build trust so that so that they can go on this healing journey. And and, and that's when I realized like healing is beyond just the physical and the medicine and the bandages. And those are all important and they play a role in healing, but it's your emotional, your mental, your spiritual well-being too. And when I was a first, I had graduate, actually it was a, it was a final practicum I was doing. I had two patients, exact same age, women, um, early seventies, both had hip replacements, literally their rooms. Like it could have been a research study. They had rooms right next to each other. And one woman had mentally prepared herself for this hip replacement. She was swimming every day. She got herself physically in shape. She was like, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with this really well. You know, she had this really positive attitude. And then the, the other woman wasn't taking it so well. And she was having a really hard time with the recovery. And even their incisions look different. And so I just thought, you know, like that really showed me, it's like, you, it's like how you see the world, the attitude that you have makes a difference in your everyday. And, and I feel that every day. So yeah, so it's the human connection for sure. I mean, I remember another day I had a patient who was, I'll never forget. She was so mean to me and I was making her bed, which again, I was thinking like, this is so dumb that I'm doing this. And and she's just picking on me. And, and I just thought, you know, in my nursing program, I went to the University of Saskatchewan and they had a, a course every once a year. It was a course you took four of them, three or four year program that was called development of self. And everybody was kind of like, this is stupid. Why are we taking this class? But it was about journaling, therapeutic communication. And now when I look back, it's the course that actually I use all those skills now today. And I'm like, thank God we took this course. <laughs> But in that moment with that patient, I was like, how can I make this relationship therapeutic? Mm -hmm. Let me ask a question about her and hear about her story. And what I found out was that her husband had passed away on that exact same floor one year ago. And so she had fear. And this was her way of speaking to her fear, you know? And so me and my husband say all the time, there isn't someone you wouldn't love if you knew their story. And, and that's what I miss is that I had the opportunity to hear multiple stories mm -hmm. every day and choose to make that connection. And you, you have to choose as a nurse and as an individual, am I going to listen or not? Will I listen with my 
full self or will I just listen with my superficial self? And patients can feel it. People feel it. Ooh, that's so like, I don't know. I feel like that needs to be said more, you know, mm. like health is really the result of everything that you choose to accept and mm-hmm. consume and, and work on in your life. And you were, you were really, yeah, shedding light on the, the humanity that you were able to touch yeah. in, in your time. And I, you know, kind of want to center nursing now on the current context and just, you know, what you think about what's going on. But, you know, we're living in some COVID Uh. times (laughs) and nurses, maybe I've been blind to it until now, but like, I really didn't ever think like, what is the day in the life of a nurse today? The people that show up, that wake up, that, you know, really like put themselves completely on the front lines, blood, sweat, and tears, all of it to really support those who are most in need right now. And, you know, as a former nurse, um, what do you feel people should know that they don't currently know about the world of of nursing, the humans behind, Mm -hmm. behind this profession that will help us have more empathy for the people that are really like the soldiers, the warriors of our time. Yes. Well, the truth is, is that I don't know what nurses are going through right now. And I know that it's challenging, but I can't even imagine because there's, I'm like, if you're not actually on the front lines, you know, we we were talking about the social dilemma before we started this podcast, right? So what I'm getting on my feed is like this really curated algorithm of, of news, quote unquote news. And so I have assumptions of what it's like. But I really don't know. And I'm just thinking, like, sometimes you have questions like, is this real? Like, you know, I mean, I believe COVID is very real, but it's like you you get fed these things. So I have friends who are nurses on the front lines and I reach out to them directly. And I have a friend right now actually in San Francisco who's working in the ICU who does have patients who are trying to who are fighting COVID. I don't even want to try to speak for them because I know that what they're going through is really intense and I do want to honor what they're going through. And I felt like when this all happened. I actually renewed all my CPR, my, my, um, all my certifications. Cause I thought, okay, if I have to go back to work, my, I still have my license, then I'm going to be ready to go back to work and, and be there with my past colleagues and coworkers. But what people should remember is that we're all human. And so we all have families at home. And so it goes the same thing as the nurses to the grocery workers. There was a meme today that I read, which I, which I agree with, that said we didn't actually go into lockdown. The middle class went into a lockdown and the like, lower class just fed us, basically. And so it's like if you think about the people who didn't have the opportunity to stay at home or to work from home, it's the, the, like, the bus drivers, the, the um, grocery store workers, the delivery people, um, you know, and it's just kind of like knowing that they all have families, too. They all have fears, too. They all have bills to pay, too. And so we need to have that empathy and know that they are making sacrifices to make other people's lives better. Yeah, it's. You know, even though we're how many months into COVID, like it's really yeah. good to be grounded, you yeah. know, in in the humanity of what's happening. And and we'll get to more about the stay human. Yeah, totally. Part of part of what drives you. But yeah, I think that ties really nicely into um this piece about authenticity, mm-hmm. which um you lay there so beautifully on your website. And I just want to read part of what you wrote to center us. Um, You write, your authenticity is your greatest act of service. Undoing a lifetime of these, quote, shoulds to uncover your authentic self is hard work. 
It's messy and it can be lonely. And when I, when I read that, I was just like, you know, that's something that I know, but the way that you wrote that, it just, it really struck a chord. Like, Mm -hmm. right. You know, being yourself can be really hard Mm -hmm. and it can feel very lonely if you haven't lived a whole life just being mm-hmm. yourself and, mm-hmm. and allowing all these external forces of patriarchy, capitalism, systems mm-hmm. of oppression, whatever they may be, mm-hmm. really drive you when in fact that's not really you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love for you to shed some light on what kind of catalyzed the shift for you from shoulds to authenticity and service. Mm-hmm. You've kind of spoken a little bit more about it, but I, I love yeah. that this is core to you. Burnout. <laughs> can i swear on this thing what? you I'm just, like, just be yourself i'm tired of of trying to just keep something going that didn't feel right so burnout i think would be the easiest way to describe it but you know you just said something really interesting that we i feel like we should talk about is like is there anybody who's ever been their true self since the beginning do you know what i mean because there's always people around you who are putting an expectation on you. Again, it can be your parents, your teachers, your friends. And it's not because they don't love you. It's that they're just bringing in their own experience and what they, how they see the world. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if anyone's ever, I mean, it's like if someone goes, I'm always happy hundred percent of the time. It's like, are you though? Like, let's get real here. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's be authentic. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so for me it was burnout. And I think the biggest lesson in that was that I became, an, I moved into being an employee to an employer. I started my business. So I, I moved away from full-time bedside nursing, started my own business. The businesses evolved, multiple businesses. But I did a lot of comparing because I was trying to learn and educate. But what happened is that I would compare myself to other businesses. And then I would say like, oh, well, should I be more like them? Like my first business was a I was still nursing full time, but I started making feather earrings. This is when everyone was doing like feather hair extensions. This was 2010, so 10 years ago. And I remember I went to this craft store and got stamps and I made a little hang tag for my earrings and it was called Sara Lua. Lua is my middle name. And I would get really insecure when I'd go to festivals and there'd be other feather earring booths. Even though I didn't even have a booth at that festival, it would just like, I was like, oh my God, I can't go look at those earrings because what if they're better than mine and I'm not good enough and... You know, I couldn't even, I couldn't even look at the jewelry and it would just make me feel like sick. It was just this like insecurity of me thinking like, okay, I need to be like them or they're better or whatever. And so I went through an evolution of that and everything that I did. And then social media got big and then you got Instagram and then we're all comparing our Instagram profiles. And then I would be like, well, maybe I need to use this filter on my photos and maybe I should do it like this. And then, and then you keep it going for a month and you're just so uninspired that you're just like, I don't want to be on Instagram anymore, you know? And so when I say that authenticity, you can make your greatest impact being your authentic self is that so many of us will say, we want to make a difference in the world. Or I just want to feel good or I want to feel happy. And it's like, if you want to do that sustainably for the longevity of your life, which a lot of us are going to live over a hundred now, you just got to, you have to figure out what that looks like to you to be able to keep it up. Otherwise you're going to go through this whole cycle of like burnout and then get super inspired because you saw something that you like want to aspire to that you think you should be not what you really are. I think inspiration is good, but just knowing where it's coming from. And then burnout again and that. And so 
what I realized is that there was three things that helped me figure out what my authentic self is. Because you'll say, well, how do you know who you are? So for me, it was three things. It was figuring out what my values were. And so for me, different is beautiful. And that differences have value um, is really important to me right now in my life. Having the courage to live in those values that means you might have to disappoint somebody that you care about because maybe that means you have to make decisions in your life to live in those values that are different than somebody that's important to you, what they think. And then also being kind and compassionate to yourself because your values change and you have to understand that and have that openness. Um, so for example, I was uber religious, um, and I still consider myself religious now and very spiritual, but I had drawn some lines in the sand personally, where if you did this, you were good. And if you did this, you were bad or not as good. <laughs> and then I, you know, those are my, in my teens. And then I moved out on my own and I got to meet a whole bunch of cool, different people who had different lives than me. They didn't look like me. They didn't necessarily believe the same things as me, but I saw that we could still all be friends and coexist and inspire each other and love each other. And I realized that the world's actually really gray, but I had to go through this period where I just stopped praying and I stopped meditating and I stopped reflecting inwards because it brought a lot of fear. Cause I was like, Oh, well, everything that I thought to be true, isn't true anymore. So what does that mean about me? Am I bad now? Because I'm changing. And so it took almost, almost about a year and then one day I realized it's like, no, it's like, we can all, like, we all can be good. You know, we all want to make a difference in our own capacity. And so then I was able to go back to inward reflection and meditation. And, and that's that having that self-compassion work. And so when people talk about like self-care, it's beyond the bubble bath because if the voice in your head is telling you the same things, you're going to be in that really nice, luxurious, expensive bubble bath using those same things and you're, you know, telling yourself the same thing. So it's, it's having a, um, a self-compassion practice. And I only developed that after actually taking a self-compassion course, a course that was developed by Christine Neff. And it, and it centers a lot around meditation and like, like, like calming our nervous system so that we can react differently and have a greater degree of resiliency towards difficult situations. And that's been really awesome. Like in my work today, my nervous system is high. So I should probably go do a little meditation practice to kind of calm it down. But because I'm just busy and I have things going on, but it's been really cool because it's helped me forgive my, like just be kinder to myself and be kinder to the people around me, which then in turn comes back to you. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. And it's been a journey for me to figure this out for myself. And I'm super stoked. I think that you also, it's okay to ask for help. And that was something like, I wasn't able to get to this conclusion without external help of people helping me look inward at my life and, and understand the events that have taken place and what it means. And so I want to offer that to people too, just as like a mentoring thing where it's like, if you need someone to be a soundboard of what's going on in your life to figure out what your values are or to help, help you tap into the courage that's within yourself, like I'm here because for a really long time, I thought I had to do everything on my own. And if I asked for help, it meant that I was being weak or incapable. And when I did bring in a coach and did bring in someone else and did go take this course things just opened up so quickly for me. And I didn't believe it until I actually didn't have experienced it. So, so I'm stoked if there's like someone who, you know, they're like, yeah, I, I resonate with that. And I just want to feel like, what does that mean to be, to be myself? I'm stoked to kind of, to be that soundboard for somebody. So. 
mentorship. Yeah. And also you touched on self-compassion. It's so much easier to give compassion to other people and then forget yeah. that you need to give it to yourself yeah, in totally. order to even have the capacity and the cup that's full to give. Yeah. Right. I learned that when I became a mom mm. because I realized like the thing, it's funny that I tell people the things that, that triggered me. So my son's two. So when he was born, I, re- I quickly realized that the things that triggered me before he was born didn't trigger me, not because they didn't exist anymore, but because I just didn't want to give it energy. Like I knew that my cup was only so full every day. And I was like, what am I going to give that energy to? And I wanted to give it to my son and I wanted to give it to my husband and the people close to me. I literally could like, I was like, I'd be breastfeeding him and I'd be like, oh my gosh, positive thoughts. Cause whatever I'm putting in there. <laughs> I don't know if that's being too hard on myself, but I was just like, that was my motivation. I'm like, I want the energy around my son to be positive. And if I can be my best self in that way, then he can be his best self. You know, he can be happy. And this is perfect because I want to I wanna really dive deep into this big transition that you went through being a mother and then being married. Or yeah. maybe I said that in the wrong order. <laughs> but yes, married first, then mother second. Um, but before jumping into that, you know, what you said was about calming the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And this is a little bit of my reflection coming through and what I'm about to share. But, you know, I've... I grew up like Catholic, but then I eventually like ditched that. And I was like, hmm, I want to find something else. Buddhism came into my life. And I also am huge into yoga and just like, what can I do to just calm and mm-hmm. be more in my parasympathetic nervous system? Mm-hmm. Like, what are those practices to really deepen into the parasympathetic mm-hmm. and less in the sympathetic? And yeah. I, I use those terms too, because you probably know yeah, all about totally. that world. All, all about it. <laughs> And I would just, I I love your, like your three sort of step, sort of how did you come into your authenticity? But I would love to hear, you know, you mentioned meditation and like the coaching that you allowed yourself to experience. Yeah. But I guess what are your parasympathetic practices to get you really into your calm nervous system and center? Yeah. Honestly, it's meditation. And it's funny because on the scooter ride here, so for people listening to the backstory, like why my my nervous system, my adrenaline's up, my nervous system, it's not because of this podcast. It's because I have a lot on my plate right now. I'm managing a lot. Um, I'm super grateful, but it's busy. It's busy in my life right now. And so honestly, on the car ride here, I was like, okay, I want to get grounded so that I can show up for this podcast. And I literally was like, ah, I'm like humming out loud. <laughs> to just like release, like release the energy. And, um, I never really had a super strong meditation practice before. I never, you know, and just like, I'm bad at meditating. That's like, how can you be bad if you just have to do it, you know? And if you're doing it, you're good at it. But I would pray a lot. Um, but I wouldn't just like sit in my thoughts and, and meditate and just having that, like, just like, I love the, um, loving kindness meditation. Love it. Love it. Like I'll even put a recording of it and just like listen to it while I'm doing my hair or something just to like be around it and just to remind myself of, of that feeling. Just gratitude, like a gratitude practice. I don't have it. I don't have the grat- five minute gratitude journal. I, I don't have anything like that, but just, just expressing gratitude. So like you, we're in COVID times, you know, and our life is so different. My husband's a touring musician that got canceled. We own a hotel that got shut down. You know, um, 
all of the work that we do is meant to bring people together. We host yoga retreats. We actually had a retreat on February 27th that started. It ended on the 7th. And then the lockdown happened, like, you know, they closed the airports at the end of March. And and so, like, we bring people together. Our, our nonprofit, we send people who are dying to live concerts. That completely has come to a halt. And so it's forced us to have to rethink every single thing we were doing. And so as everybody else was saying like, oh, COVID, the lockdown is so great because my life has slowed down. Me and my husband were like, we still got bills to pay. We have mortgages to pay. We have to think about where we're going to find our next paycheck now. All of our fallbacks, like my husband was always like, oh, well, if my music doesn't work out, I always have the hotel. And then after we're literally like, like he said, we're losing money like a spaghetti strainer. You know, we have 42 employees here in Bali. Um, we have have eight employees in America, you know? So it was just like, it was stressful. There was like a minute where we both looked at each other and we're like, what are we going to do? And we looked at each other and we're like, we're going to fight because we're fighters and our parents were fighters and our parents fought and they showed up. And I remember my mom was actually in Bali. She actually came for the first time when we, when we got here before the lockdown and she could see everything was kind of falling apart. She was like, you know, Sara, she's like, what I learned is like money comes and goes just like, just stay, like stay grounded, stay focused. It's going to work out. And hearing my mom say that really helped me. And now it's like, we did fight me. My husband had been working hard and it feels so good to look at your like love partner and business partner and say like, we fucking did it. You know, mm -hmm. like we came together and we rallied hard and it's not that shit didn't come up. But it's that we were able to know like, okay, is this the time and place right now to be addressing this? No. So let's, let's carve out a time to talk up, talk through whatever we just went through when the time is right. And we can both be present for it. And we, we just kept going. Cause we know that we're on the same page. We're trying to achieve the same goals. And, and now it's like my, my husband's doing online shows. I'm producing it We're in Bali. Like I had to learn how to do that. Um, we are repivoting our nonprofit, you know, and we're just like in full support of each other. And we look at each other every day and we're like, we're I'm so grateful for you and we're happy. So yes, we're overwhelmed. Yes, we're stressed out. Yes, we're busy and we're really happy. And so it's okay. Oh, superwoman. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So there's lots more to tease out from what you just shared. And I, I really hear resilience. I really hear like yeah, man, COVID it has been like the mm -hmm. biggest test on humanity and it's tested all of us in very unique ways. But there's also the common denominator that we're all human. Yeah. And so therefore it's like, ask for help. You're not weak. You're actually strong when you ask for help. How can we sort of undo the things that we've learned to really show up more mm -hmm. fully during these times? I'm getting goosebumps just yeah, thinking about totally. it. Um, so now I would love to shift this conversation into marriage and motherhood yeah. and kind of keeping <laughs> with like the, the, the story of Sarah. So I have to, of course, ask, fulfill my celebrity curiosity. <laughs> How did I meet Michael? Is that the question? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> well, first of all, sure, you can just give the shorter version. But like, did you think when you met him, you guys were going to be like, partners in love but also yeah. partners in business yeah because that's like you know a very unique situation totally so unique um so I met Michael because I was uh in the audience of a folk festival in Canada in a city called a city called Regina which I know everyone's gonna laugh when we're in third grade Canadians 
<laughs> he like looks up here. It's a capital of Saskatchewan. In third grade, we have to learn all the capitals. We get we get it out of our system. But then you like tell Americans, and they're like, oh, it's so bad. <laughs> so, but it's a small it's a small city in Canada. And I was in the I was in the audience. My girlfriend Marie was a fan of um, his music, and she was like, we have to go see Michael Franti and. It's really funny. There's a picture of us sitting because the festival had gotten rained out and shut down for a little while. We're sitting under this awning of a coffee shop and she's reading his bio out loud and we're all sitting there and there's a picture of us. So that was my first introduction to him. And yeah, he noticed me in the audience, which people are like, oh my gosh, that really happens. But if you did a survey of artists, most of them meet their partners at their shows because it's like, where else are you going to meet people when you tour a lot? It's like, unless you've been set up. Um, but we were friends for three years and we weren't, we weren't like love partners. We were just, we were friends and we saw each other probably five times in that period, but we Skyped a lot. That was Skype had just started. I actually, my first, my first time on Skype, I had, you know, the ball camera that you put on top of your mm. laptop and you look like an Oompa Loompa because the, <laughs> the color was never quite right. And Michael was always like, you should get a Mac. Like this looks bad. And so then a few months later I bought my first Mac, but, um, yeah, so then we, so after three years, I moved to California to travel nurse, and that's when our relationship began. And to be clear, for all the listeners, I did not move to California for Michael, which Michael likes to believe, but not even close, <laughs> not even close. So, um, yeah, and, and so I didn't think we'd be business partners, but I always knew we'd be partners because I knew Michael already had a career that was very established, and I was just getting started in my career, and I wasn't quite sure what it was going to look like. But I remember sitting with him and almost having like a business meeting and being like, look, I want to like, let's do this. We want it. We knew once we, because we were friends for so long, we knew we wanted to get married as soon as we got together. And I was like, but I don't want to just be Michael Franti's wife. Like, I want to be your partner. I don't want to walk behind you. I want to walk with you. I want us to support each other. And we did say like, let's do things together. Like maybe we do philanthropic work because service has always been important in both of our families. So starting the nonprofit Do It For The Love was a very natural next step. It was the first thing that we did in partnership, true partnership. Um, and it was really challenging at first because we were kind of like stepping on each other's toes. And I felt like he had to know everything that I was doing and he had to hear about it. And I had to get the acknowledge, like, thank you, the gratitude for it. And um, it, it felt it fell into nicely into where it is now because I have my sets of roles and response and he has his role and responsibility within the organization and it works it works great but um yeah but then just naturally like we have our own we actually saw a business coach because we were like get we were kind of butting heads a lot and I'm like let's go see a business coach just to see what's up and we did all these tests and she comes back and she's like you guys are actually the best business partners because you bring the complete opposite set of skills to the table. So like for me, I'm super like, I love, I'm an ER nurse. I love systems. I love evaluation. I love Excel spreadsheets. I love numbers. I love setting goals. Michael's an, an incredible creative. Like I love strategy. Michael's an incredible creative. I love when he walks into a room and he says, Sara, I've got a crazy idea. I'm like, give it to me. I'm like, cause it's going to be good. You know? Um, and so I, I love taking his ideas and then executing them. So it's when we learn how to work in that capacity, which I feel like this COVID time has forced us to, to have a degree of respect for each other that we didn't necessarily have before, um, to work in that way that we've been able to have such smooth growth in our, in our businesses. 
it's, it's, it's so, I love, I love that piece you said about, I don't want to walk behind you. I want to walk with you and I want real partnership and I want to give myself the space to really like fill into my identity, my potential Mm -hmm. alongside you. Totally. And, um, this is, this was going to be, um, a future question, but maybe I'll bring it in now. You say somewhere on your site that, um, a strong, smart, outspoken woman can be hard to accept sometimes, but that I, you Mm -hmm. can be strong and that can be my sweetness. Mm -hmm. So on this thread of like being a strong woman and being, um, a business owner of multiple projects and Mm -hmm. being the wife of Michael and having a baby Taj, right. What can you say to the woman out there who want to be many different things to many different people, Mm -hmm. um, but also just want to feed themselves first and like always come back to that? Yeah. And navigate this with ever more grace. I think that's the piece. Like, can you do it all and be it all and still be that strong, smart woman? You know, I wrote that letter to myself. I I published it. It was like a letter to myself. I was really... um, it came from a place of like, I was really upset one night because I was having like, I was being accused of just being too negative and coming in too hot. Like you came in too hot, Sarah, you know? And I was like, F- that. I was like, I'm just being myself, you know? Like this is who I am. I'm a child of parents who came and had to fight and, and they held me to a degree of accountability. Like they held me up to really high standards. I give a hundred percent of everything, everything that I do, you know? And I shouldn't, and I work hard and that shouldn't be perceived as something negative. We're not all the same. And so strength, as you ask that question, it's like, well, that means that strength will look different in every individual and every woman. And I think you can be everything. You can't be everything at a hundred percent all the time, unless you set your expectations of like what 100% means. So for me, I can't be 100% of everything all the time. And so as we spoke before, it's like finding this balance, like today I got to get a lot of shit done. So maybe I'm not going to be the rock star mom that maybe I think a rock star mom should be, you know what I mean? And it's okay to have your intention and vision of what that is. Like maybe I feel really good when I'm a mom, when I can play with Taj for a couple hours before dinner, we have a nice little bath and that feels like a good day. But today is not going to be that. Today is going to be the day where I'm going to send all my emails and get all that and check all those lists done, you know? And so that's the self-compassion practice too. Mm-hmm. It's that there has to be this balance, but that doesn't mean that everything's 100% across the leaderboard. That means that you have to understand that someday something's going to be higher and then it's, it's going to all work out in the wash. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would say to someone who's like, I want to do multiple things. It's like, that's awesome. We are living in the, in the, in the age of, um, What's the word that Michael, my husband uses like uh, slashy, like we're slashies, like we are content creators, we are journalists, we are mother, you know what I mean? Like you have, like, you're not just one thing. Oh, right? slashies. Yeah. That's so good. I don't even know. It's like something like that. He's like, we're all slashies now. Like I'm a musician and I'm an actor and I'm a whatever, you know, like, and I own a juice shop and I own, you know, so yeah. And why not? And if you don't want to be all those things, that's awesome too. If you just want to be like, if you want to have one 
thing that you focus on every day, whatever it is, like that's amazing too. It doesn't make you any less better or worse or inadequate or more mm-hmm. adequate. So sometimes having choice paralysis can be really um overwhelming, you know, like I yeah. have so many things totally. in, in this moment and I am, you know, this slash this slash this. Um and is it enough? Right. So and so has another slash job in front of oh my God. You know, totally. There's definitely a lot of um, trying to slash each other out in yeah. this day and age. And, you know, you you became a mom at some point and Taj is too, mm-hmm. right? And you have written a lot about, you know, how you transitioned mm-hmm. into mamahood and, you know, whether you call it spiritual or whatever, but it feels very like conscious the mm-hmm. way that you think about it. And yeah, I would just love for you to tell us, you know, okay, after meeting Michael and you guys started Do It For Love, which we're going to talk about more in a bit, and then like Taj comes around, you're juggling so many things. How did you, how did you really bring all of these core values of like authenticity, self-compassion, mm-hmm. and and what you just shared mm-hmm. about not being 100% into bringing Taj into the world? Well, I discovered those things after I brought Taj into the world. So his first year of life was really hard because I didn't take a maternity, like a proper maternity leave. And when I was pregnant, I feel like I focused so much on like the nursery and like getting all the clothes washed and ready to go. And I had a girlfriend who would always say, cause like me and my husband were the type of people who work 24 hours a day. Like we would stay up all night. We'd pull all nighters and, um, she would say, like, Sarah, what are you going to do? She's like, you're not going to have time to do all this work. And I just imagined myself putting the baby in the bouncer and like answering emails. Like that's what I thought I could do. And within two weeks of giving birth to Taj, I was like on conference calls and I shouldn't have been like, I feel like there's this, and I were planning on having another child and I plan on taking a proper one year Canadian inspired maternity leave. Like none of this six weeks bullshit stuff. Like I want, like, of course I'm going to still like be involved in, in all of our work, but I want to be able to just heal and refine my new version of me. And, um, so it was having Taj going through this like crazy burnout, you know, I was working right away and he was, he was five months old. I remember I was driving home from the mall. I think I was like running errands and he made, I don't even remember if he was in the car. I remember sitting at a stoplight and I just started bawling because I was just so tired and I knew I'd have to go home and put Tosh to bed and it was going to be just this like exhausting thing for me. And I was like, why am I working? Like, who am I trying to prove myself to? I have an incredible husband. We're, we're blessed that financially, and again, I know this is very unique to my situation, but like, we're blessed that financially, I don't have to go out and like earn the money right now we can sustain on his income so like who am I trying to prove myself to it's me so why am I just not giving myself a break and I had to have that moment where I'm like sorry I literally talked out loud I'm like Sarah just like chill the fuck out like just it's gonna be fine you don't have to be pushing yourself so hard and what I did is like the practical things was I took off all the notifications on my phone. I told my team with the nonprofit, I'm only going to check my nonprofit emails, do for love emails Tuesdays and Thursdays. Those are going to be my work hours. I'm not going to answer them. Like, which we're so, we, we, there's this expectation that we put on ourselves even of availability, you know? So it was these practical things that I started implementing to give myself a break and get it out of my mind too, you know? And then I started doing the self-work, working with a coach 
and doing a self-compassion practice that helped me realize all these things that I mentioned about values and courage and, and compassion and, and that we're in constant evolution. And so I'm going to have to go through this again when we have another kid. It may be a whole different lifestyle and I'll have to go through this whole growth process again and it will be painful, but I understand the process now and so I can be more forgiving and I can go through the motions of it and much easier with less resistance. But Ooh, Wow. That's, that's it. You know, I... I guess like being the age that I'm at also and like seeing people in my age group start to to have kids, it's yeah. like, yeah, there's one there's one way you think about motherhood and then there's the actual reality, right? Yeah. And then the two coming together, it's like whoa. And it's not I actually feel like it's not fair. Like I, I do feel like that as women, we do have this pressure. And I don't know if it's like every woman, but I feel like Like we do have this pressure where it's like, you have to have your career, but then you literally have a biological clock that's ticking. That's like, are you going to get pregnant? Are you going to have a kid? And then you can't get pregnant. Well, then are you going to freeze your eggs? Like, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, there's just a lot of pressure that's put on us. And now there's all this like bullshit pressure from the American government that's making things even harder for us as women to decide and have autonomy on our, on our own lives and decisions. And but it's not fair because I've seen women go through this struggle and I just, and I feel, I feel empathy, you know, and I feel, I feel like it's unjust. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, in your dream world, like if we could bring more empathy into the space of supporting women during these transitions and to take some of that pressure off and bring more ease, what would you Okay, so I was, out? like, never believed in communal living, ever. Like, ever. Like, when people would bring it up, I'd be like, that is so hippie. That is not me. I would never do this, right? And then when the lockdown happened, we have our hotel, Soulshine Bali, and there was two other um, women who we knew. One was, one was actually in Bali at the time. She's a yoga teacher, but she was as our nanny here, and she ended up staying, and she stayed with us at Soulshine in quarantine. And then her... Um, her partner, her business partner and friend was also there. And so it's not that they had, like we have, in, we have uh, someone who provides childcare for us, but just energetically, they were also on the property, just keeping an eye out for Taj. And we were supporting each other and we'd have family dinners and we talk about our successes of the day. And like, what did you get done? How are you feeling? Like, what do you, do you need me to be a soundboard for you for something? And it was so awesome. And I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if we lived in like, a really big like like now I've become that person where I'm like we should just live in this really big piece of land and your kids can run around and be free and other people are keeping an eye out on them you know and and when I had Taj my mom lived with us for five weeks and I'm like thank you like so much for doing that and I feel like so awful when I see I just feel like my heart goes out to families who don't have that support and they have to do it on their own you know, so I just think being empathetic that, that you are going to go through. And some women may not, like some women may fall into this with such ease and may not resonate with anything that I'm saying. And that's okay too. Like, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to go through this. This was my journey, you know, yeah, but for sure. Yeah. And asking for that help. I think that's sort of a theme. Yeah. Like, why can't we just like enjoy and celebrate? Like I'm about to ask for help. I'm yeah. going to like score some points for myself yeah. by doing that, totally. you know, and really reframe that whole concept. Yeah. Um, so kind of segueing through Sarah's world as we move into do it for the love. Yeah. 
um, which you co-founded with your husband to use the power of music to inspire hope in those facing life-threatening illnesses and severe challenges. So just to like set the stage, can you just tell us how this got started? Mm -hmm. What was the real deep soul longing inspiration? Yeah. So me and my husband always knew that we would do something together. It was something that we always talked about. And then in April of 20, April 21st of 2013, we're at a music festival in Florida. We met this couple named Hope and Steve December. And Steve had been diagnosed with ALS about two years prior. This was before the ice bucket challenge. So people didn't know what ALS was, really. It wasn't a popular term that people were aware of. And Hope, they had a handle, Hope for Steve. And they were tweeting at Michael. And they're like, this might be Steve's last show. He was young. He was 32 at the time. And um, he would really love to meet you. And so Michael like reposted their tweets. And the day before the festival, he was like, you know, those tweets that I've been reposting, I'm going to, we're going to, they're going to be at the show. We're going to meet them. And so being a nurse, I was like, I want to know their story. So we go on their website and we watched their wedding video. And at the time Steve was able to walk and, and speak. And it was really beautiful. And then the next day we meet Steve and now he's in a wheelchair and you, he can only have like small whispers and, and lip and you could read his lips and his wife Hope was caring for him. And so we brought them up on the side of the stage during the show, and Michael played the song Life is Better with You, and he invited them out to dance, and he and he introduced Steve as Steve. And this was the, the third day of the festival, and so he was always kind of just seen as, like, the guy in the wheelchair, which we're always guilty of, you know? And Michael was able to introduce him as the for the person he is, the individual that he is, and not the disability that he's living with. And it was really, that was really beautiful. And Hope and Steve start dancing, and she's dancing with him in his chair. And then Steve whispers to Hope, I want to get up and dance. And so Hope, who's, like, super beautiful and tall, she picks up Steve, and she's holding him up. And, and they have this slow dance on stage. And I'm crying, and Michael's crying, and 20,000 people in the audience are crying. And we went home that night, and we were like, this is such a beautiful thing like moment and memory that we were able to create for this family that we should do this for thousands of people and so we were like let's start an organization and there are organizations that bring music to hospitals but there was nothing that brought people to live shows and, and adults and children so what we do our mission is that we bring adults and children to live concert experiences who are living in end stages of life-threatening illness or children who have been dealing with severe challenges and then wounded veterans including ptsd so we um were we officially did our first wish in 2013 fall of 2013 so we're six years old now i guess six years old and um seven years old and we've done over 3000 live concert experiences and we said because I was a nurse I remember having our first meeting and I was like we have to acknowledge the caregiver so it's the individual and then three family members or caregivers or friends that go with them to the show and it's been awesome so Michael's always like it's not just 3000 it's 12,000 people's lives that we've touched so yeah wow I mean it really brings together both of your like mm -hmm. passion points as well to really have the greatest impact and be in that act of service that runs through your blood right and yeah your family lines and um obviously COVID times um has changed mm -hmm. all of this mm -hmm. um and so you kind of spoke earlier about you know, when shit hit the fan, yeah. you know, what are we going to do? Yeah. How are we going to shift and, and be with this current yeah. versus against it? So yeah, when, when COVID hit, what, what, how, what impact did that have on, um, on do it for um, the love and, and how and are everything. you, and, and, 
yeah, everything really. <laughs> yeah. But right, like how, how have you guys creatively thought about yeah. sort of reshifting during these times yeah. and maybe has a new vision emerged on how to use this platform to yeah. really have the greatest impact it can have now? It's a really good question. So obviously the when touring, everything got canceled, so we couldn't fulfill any more wishes, send people to these experiences. So we quickly pivoted to the, because we reached out to music therapy departments within hospitals and we're like, what can we do? And people were in severe isolation. You could either have no, um, no visitors, or if you're a child, you could only have one like parent in the room with you. So they were like, we need things to just help them not feel so lonely. And so we created a program called Operation Love Notes. And we, we reached out to music therapy departments. And then for, for example, UCSF in San Francisco, we did art packs and mp3s and teddy bears for veteran homes um we did um mp3s and so we did that until the end of july and then we sunsetted that out and now what we're looking into is working with community-based music therapy programs because what we learn in everything that we do is that we're now looking at a new way of wellness and wellness is no longer about your one yoga class and your organic salad once a week wellness about this is all encompassing physical emotional spiritual mental self. And all of that comes down to resiliency. So within our nonprofit, we want to give our families tools that allow them to, um, find resiliency in the, in the waves of life, in these challenges. And so community-based music therapy department, the music therapy programs can help people do that because COVID has just spotlighted the challenges mm -hmm. of life. People are living in hard times all the time. But COVID has now like has forced us to not ignore that reality of life. And so now in everything that we do, whether it's a nonprofit or our hotel with our soul rocker retreats, we want to be able to we've decided to pivot in everything to help build resiliency in the lives of others. Mm. Yeah, that resiliency piece, you're right. I mean, it was all there. We just shined a light. And mm -hmm. I this woman, Kyoto Williams, she's like, um, a Zen Buddhist monk, black woman, like I think the second one ordained ever. And she said, we are living in an age where we cannot be in denial anymore. Mm -hmm. Like we were in denial before. Yeah. No more denying no, anymore. That's true. Um, and so, right. Kind of coming into the present day mm -hmm. and you and your family have been in Bali since March, <laughs> right? You yeah. guys have been stuck here. Yeah. You were going to go back to California, but then COVID. Yeah. So since then you guys have been, you know, running Soul Shine, um, your wellness center in Ubud that brings together the wellness piece you were just speaking about, but the holistic wellness, right? For longevity, for resiliency, mm -hmm. long-term and rock and roll. Totally. Love that. I love that combination. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make sure I was going to say and rock and roll. And rock and like, roll. We're, we're the, like, we believe that wellness is fun. And so there is a place where you go to the ashram and clean the toilet with the toothbrush. Like there may be a point in your life where you need to do that, but you don't do that at Soul Shine. At Soul Shine, you can get on your mat and you can go deep and you can cry and you can like do a practice and then you can go have a cocktail by the pool, you know? And so um, we want people to come and yeah, and, and have that rock and roll edge to their wellness experience. So. I, I love that so much because <laughs> spirituality doesn't have to be so serious. Right. You know, if you look at the Dalai Lama or any of the big spiritual teachers, they're laughing. They're laughing and they're they're fighting lightness, right? Totally. In My husband, you know, actually you should look up um, look up Michael Franz and the Dalai Lama because we've met the Dalai Lama and he actually spoke to Michael. He actually called Michael, he labeled him as the um the unrestricted monk. He's the monk without rules. 
And he spoke to Michael's music and he said that um, when I first met you, I looked at your hair and your tattoos. Like it's all, it's all recorded. You can watch it. But he said, but the words that you share bring joy and happiness and change people's lives. So I shaved my head. I took a vow of celibacy. I wear these robes. He said, but you don't have to do that. You are the unrestricted monk. So yeah, so it's true. <laughs> what you said, 100, like what you just said is 100%. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Um, and so I've been to Soulshine and I remember walking in and it was just so beautiful. And what really captivated me was the word stay human was on Michael's hat, was on um, the wall in the, the dining area. Mm-hmm. It was just something that was like, that is the most human thing you can say to mm-hmm. stay human. Um Yeah. And I just want to, I guess, open up this conversation. There isn't like a specific question, but right. Tourism has tanked Mm -hmm. in Bali. Like 80% of the Balinese economy is based Mm -hmm. on tourism. And now that's shut down Mm -hmm. and you guys running this wellness center, rock and roll wellness Mm -hmm. center, you know, are part of this, you Mm -hmm. know, situation. So, you know, tell us like during these months, how have you guys stayed strong and maybe again, like thought, differently and creatively about how can we have the greatest impact right now Mm -hmm. with this super awesome spot for the community that's actually here. Yeah. Well, yeah. So when, when COVID hit and we like locked down, so we shut down the hotel and we were just living there and then we, we are in an expansion. So we are, we were primarily a retreat space and we've expanded. We were 16 rooms. We've expanded to 32. So we built another additional 16 rooms and a day club, which we're, which we're, we've created as like a wellness hotel. So people can come and they can do a la carte wellness experiences. So if you don't want to be on a curated retreat, you can curate your own sort of retreat experience. Um, but we had the space and we were just kind of slowly chipping away at it. We slowed the build a little bit, but then the, the restaurant, well, it's actually going to be a weight room, but for now we were like, this could be a restaurant. We have furniture. Let's, um, let's put some events on following COVID protocols. And we have so much space that people can social distance and still be around music and hear music, um, to just generate some community around here. Because again, if people in a boot, a lot of people have exited out and they've gone to the beach and the, and to like Changu and Uluwatch. And so there wasn't a lot happening here. And, and it was hard on our staff. Like we kept all of our staff on all of our team and it was getting depressing, you know, because it's like, you just keep walking to this. And I'm sure they were like, can we see some other people other than the Frontis? <laughs> but it's cool. Like we, and you know, it's like, we're just, we started. And, and the thing is, is that people in Bali never knew us as a place where they could drop in. Cause we were always private for retreats. So this has been an opportunity for us to kind of let people know that you can come and hang out at soul shine for the day, come co-work, come hang out. But with that, it's really brought, um, inspiration and hope with our team, which goes back to their families. And there's no unemployment in Bali. Like we could never let them. It's like, what? Are, there's nothing to do, but we're located in the village of Moss and we have an incredible relationship with our Banjar. Um, and they have created in, so now we're seven, eight months almost into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people, as you said, are being hit really hard. And, and so they've created a plastic exchange so instead of just doing like a food pantry handout, what they've done is they ask the people of the community to bring plastic to their bonjar and then they weigh it and then they exchange it for rice. Mm-hmm. And so Soulshine has sponsored 
our bond jars plastic exchange. So we sponsored the rice until the end of the year. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to extend it beyond that. But so yesterday was a plastic exchange, which is why I didn't have childcare. And I had to post them on the podcast because I had to go to the bond jar. And they said that they had double the amount. So they thought that they would have like, I should look up the number, but it was like 300 kilos. They ended up having 500 kilos, like something crazy. So they had, they had, they had almost double the turnout. They had two and a half trucks of plastic. And then they take that plastic and they sell it to the recycling company. So the Kuta, who's our leader of the Bonjour, was just so happy. And he's like, now it's like you have kids who are being educated on the impact of the environment and single use plastic and people are able to get resources like we're able to help our community members and we get to feel engaged and part of their community and we have so much gratitude to this island and to the people of the island and and allowing us to be here during the pandemic and I my heart is just like so full and I'm like if this is like the least that we can do then soul shine is so happy to to do but it's inspiring to see how people are also pivoting and being innovative you know how can we you know find opportunity Mm. No, it's amazing. Actually, it's... um. So there's another plant-based restaurant here um, called Moksa, and uh, they are the ones who started this initiative back in March. And yeah, when I heard about it, I thought, hmm, it's so cool that now we're really looking more at how we can be in relationship with one another here yeah. and really sort of generate economy in Bali yeah. that's not relying on tourists because they're not coming in anytime yeah. soon. So I really, I love that there's so much activism yeah. that's bubbling up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, when you hear the word activist, my mind at least goes to people like protesting mm-hmm. out in the streets, people showing angry. up angry, passionate, passionate, yeah. <laughs> but also sometimes burnt out. Totally. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, after the George Floyd incident, the Brianna Uh, Mm -hmm. Taylor incident, there was a part of me that felt like, man, how can I show up Mm -hmm. and be a voice for change Mm -hmm. being in Bali, being Mm -hmm. so far away from the U.S.? And, you know, so it's um, it's really inspiring to hear that this is actually happening here Mm -hmm. in its own way for the Balinese people. Mm -hmm. And I found this quote in The New Yorker, Mm -hmm. and it's about, I guess, the state of celebrity activism, at least starting during COVID. And I want to, I want to read it because for me, seeing the work that you do and the work that you do with Michael, it's like such an example of how you can use platforms to really spread positive messages and do something real with that. So I just want to read this just to center Mm -hmm. us on this. So this was from a New Yorker article and they say, it's wishful to expect every musician with more than a million followers to be schooled in the perils of systemic racial inequality, much less to be equipped to speak publicly about it. In fact, it would probably be in our collective best interest that not all of them did. Still, one hopes that among the faction of the highly followed and highly influential who were jumping to post-Black squares during Mm -hmm. that time and vague sentence fragments, there are some who could use their visibility to actually do more. Um, So they say the increased pressure on artists to monetize their personal brands and the professionalization of social media have turned these internet spaces into storefronts for many corporations. They use some pretty bold language here. Mm -hmm. Sadly, it seems that many of the famous names behind these accounts have also adopted the sort of risk averse 
politically opaque rhetoric favored mm-hmm. by Fortune 500 companies, by corporations, opting for tepid platitudes and lazy hashtag activism in lieu of more resolute and potentially alienating public displays. So I remember like reading I have that. so many emotions around that whole quote. Okay, no, no. <laughs> I want you to start. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm stuck in Bali as well. Mm-hmm. I wasn't planning. We weren't planning to be here for this long. Um, but, you know, when the murder of George Floyd happened, I raged and I was like feeling pretty alone because I didn't know who to talk to about this. And I also felt really bad for being in Bali. Like, mm-hmm. who am I to be living in this beautiful, beautiful oasis? Yeah. I'm privileged. Like, that's not fair. Yeah. So anyways, like, I look to you guys as an example of people that stay human, who are just really grounded and, like, doing your own work mm-hmm. um, to show up for the collective, for people around the world, for these initiatives that you're passionate about. So I guess how do... How do you, and you can talk about you, you can talk about yeah. how you and Michael approach it. Have you, have you really um, thought about using your platform for activism and for spreading positive messages during these really uncertain and scary times? Yeah. Well, I want to speak to that quote Let's first, do that first because I think that like that will a lot of set the tone. Like, I don't know if the, if the writer was speaking to specific, if they, as they were writing it, if there were specific people that they were thinking of, but I feel like activism looks like a lot of different things. And I do agree with the statement that a lot of us are trying to play it safe because we don't want to like piss people off, you know, like, and we're, we're sometimes we're holding back which I find myself also like I'll hold back and I'm like, Oh, like I really want to say this, but am I going to alienate? Like, you know, even my friend who I know doesn't agree with me, for example, but then you just don't feel good. Right. And so then this comes back to the whole thing of being yourself. Like, and people will write me on, on social media and they'll say like, you transitioned from being just like a, they'll say things like just like a normal person. Like you're just like a nurse and now you have this platform and now you're married to a musician. And how is that for you? And how can I learn to speak my truth? And, and I was like, whatever you put on social media, there will always be at least one person who will not agree with you. I mean, even, even if you're just in a room, whether, and you're just speaking about something, there's going to be at least one person who doesn't agree with you. And so what you speak to, you have to be so sure of, like you should be so sure of it that when someone does come up against you, you don't like go into fight or flight and like delete the post or, oh my God, like, why did I do that? And like lose sleep or like go down the social media rabbit hole. And I, that's why you have to have clarity of values. Like that's why it's so important that as you, as you step into if, as your activism work, whatever that looks like, like I had no problem with the black square, you know, if we want to get controversial, because the thing is, it's that it's like, if you're like, the white woman in Marin, and that's the least you could do to show a degree of solidarity, then why am I going to shit on you for doing that? Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that as an opportunity and say, hey, I noticed you pushed that, you put posted that black square, like, let's talk, like, you know, find that as a segue of conversation. Because if you shit on someone and you go, well, that was for the music industry, like, I get it. Like, I saw what happened. I get why the criticism was happening. But it's like, you guys, we're on the same side. Like, why are you shitting on people who are trying to move? And you can't take someone from A to Z. You know, everyone started at A at one point in their life. And they got to whatever letter, you know. And Z is, like, the most woke you could be, you know. 
maybe because my parents came from a different country, spoke different languages. I was surrounded by different people. Maybe I got to like M before I was 18. You know what I mean? But maybe my best friend who grew up in like, whatever, like small town Saskatchewan or something, maybe she got to M after she was 35, you know, like because of her own lived experiences. And so if we, when we're moving in the same direction, why are we being so mean to each other? Because activism can look different. And, and so to speak to that writer, it's like, again, I don't know if they were referring to something specific, but you can only speak to what you really believe and understand too. Or maybe that should be the expectation. Cause I get people writing me all the time. Like, when I was posting about the Black Lives Matter movement, but like, why aren't you posting about the ped- pedophilia and like child sex trafficking? Like I have people just like, why aren't you posting about that? And I'm like, because I'm not educated in that right now. And when I personally find the space to be able to verse myself in that and be educated, then I will share about it. But I'm not just gonna repost a meme just because five other people have reposted a meme. Now we know more than ever about the whole social media algorithm thing. You know what I mean? And so it's like, and, and then and then I had people saying, like, why aren't you talking about the genocide in Armenia happening right now? And I'm like, because I'm not prepared to speak to it. Mm-hmm. And only until yesterday did I share something to my community because I feel like I'm more versed in it and I understand. So that was when asked me a question, I can actually educate. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, yes, I went through the same set of emotions that you did where I felt bad and I felt bad that I was encouraging people to go on the front lines and there should be people like we need people on the front lines. We need people holding those posters. We need people shouting and peaceful protesting. And we need people sitting at home being online activists. And we need people saving their energy so that when the news cycle ends and people stop reposting the memes, they're now able to go to the front lines and like carry the movement forward, mm-hmm. you know? So instead of expecting us to each, instead of you looking at other people and saying, why aren't you doing this? You need to just look at yourself mm-hmm. and just say like, what am I doing, you know? So when I felt bad and a hypocrite being in Bali and not being able to be on the front lines, I talked to my husband about it and I said, I feel guilty because I'm asking people to potentially put their lives at risk and I'm here sitting in in comfort and he said well you just do what you can and he just reinforced that he said if what you can do is educate your audience and your following then do that and so that's what I did my best to do and I did a I did my very first like IG TV story about defining the police for example and like that's what I could have done in that moment so yeah nice well said thanks that's really that, that quote I felt like isn't really fair because I feel like you don't under like you're generalized you're putting an expectation on people and you don't know where they're at you know and so yes we if you have a platform use it for good but you can decide like what that is and if you're not prepared to engage I'm not going to ask you to go do something that you don't believe in or that you're not prepared to, to be a, be part of, you know, but I'll see that as an opportunity for me to educate you and touch base with you and educate. Yeah. You know? It comes back to authenticity. Like, exactly. Do what you can really own where you're at and yeah. be in your integrity. Yeah. You know, if you can't really speak about something and it doesn't really feel true to you, don't do that. Don't do it. And me and Michael had to have like a family social media meeting because... I totally went down a rabbit hole like one night where I have, I've set my own social media ground rules where it's like, 
you know, it's like, just don't go after people you don't know, you know, and don't be mean. Like if someone writes something mean under my story, if it's something that completely has nothing to do with what I posted, I'll actually delete it because I'm like, this is taking, like, this is a distraction. So if it's like a troll or it's someone who just really is not contributing to the conversation, if it's someone who's legitimately contributing, even if it's like 100% against everything I said, I, I'm, I'm going to leave it there because they're adding to the conversation and I'll respond back to the best that I can with openness and, and understanding. But there was one night, this is like early June where someone I knew reposted something that was like, basically along the lines of like, Oh, you can protest, but you can't go to church. And that just like made my blood boil, you know? Cause like people were trying to get back to their church services, but the, the, um, group, you know, the number of people you could have in a group was low. And so they couldn't have their church services. And so I wrote and I was like, you know, this is really like, basically you're discrediting the importance of the protests that are happening right now and not acknowledging the issues that are happening. So I wrote something and then, and then I was like, well, who's the person that she reposted? And I just was like, click, click. Where did that post come from? Click, click, click. And then I find that it's like a pastor in a small, a small ass town in Saskatchewan, but he's a pastor. So he's a leader of a church and he's putting this post up. And I'm thinking like, I was just so upset. And I know that there's like racism, like I've experienced it, you know, but I was just so upset that I'm like, how could you be a pastor? And you're like fueling this hate. And then I was writing him, which is like, against all like you do not like do not do that on social media you it is not healthy it will not get you anywhere but I'm like writing and then I think like his brother was right it was just it was not good and I was up all night and I, I was like I in the moment you think you're educating but really you're just actually turning people off like you're not inviting them to to, to see your side of what's happening and and the biggest lesson I had in that was in 2014 I went to South Africa to celebrate Leah Tutu's birthday. I was invited to speak at the celebration of her birthday. They had two celebrations in South Africa. And then I was invited to go to this book writing workshop with a woman who served on the TRC um, with Desmond Tutu. And so she had, she was writing a book of 12 chapters and she had an activist or an academic write each chapter about some sort of grassroots initiative happening in South Africa. And there was one person who was sitting at the table who's who, who an activist. And she was just really like angry. Like she was really angry and she was coming from a place of a lot of hurt. But every time she spoke, she spoke, she was always just angry and you just didn't really want to like listen. Mm -hmm. And that started Friday and Sunday morning. Um, the woman who was leading this basically called her out and was like, look, if you want people to join your movement and you want people to hear you, you can't be angry because then you're, no one's going to want to hear what you have to say. And you have to speak in a way where people actually want to hear you, whether they believe you in the moment or not and that taught me a lot about compassion and and empathy and like meeting people where they're at and using that as an opportunity to to teach and learn and so that's what I try to now implement through my social media and my activism it's like yeah I posted on there that's like really provoking like I posted a meme that was like you know, you may not, if you like voting for Trump doesn't mean you're a racist, but it means that racism is not a like non-negotiable, like it's not a deal breaker. I believe that I lost a donor for a nonprofit because I posted that because it offended him, but it's okay because I, you know, like that just means that it's going to open the door energetically for someone else who maybe wants to have a conversation or something like that. Yeah. Just, just one thing I wanted to mirror back, um, about the 
learning that you came away from in South Africa, uh, it reminded me of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg always used to say. I'm going to totally butcher her words, but it's like, <laughs> hey, if you want to lead a movement or you want to make a change, do it in a way where other people want to follow you. Yeah. Bring others along. Like, mm-hmm. do it for the good of all. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. Anger has its place, but don't let that derail you from, like, the overall movement and mm-hmm. the overall good of where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure there could, there's more to say, but just, just to close, um, just two more questions, I guess. Um, you were saying before that you kept all your employees at SoulShine, like you really are inspired by the way that they show up despite these really grueling circumstances. And could you maybe share like a little gratitude note or like what it is that you love about being in Bali, especially during COVID times? And um, yeah, and just, and what you're grateful for about being here. Yeah. And the opportunity of having my son here is I think what I have the most gratitude for. We, our team has been, part of our family for the last eight months. They're the ones that we see, like we see each other all every day and they've helped raise Taj. And he's spent a quarter of his life here with them. And he had his birthday on September 10th. And everyone is, and we just invited our staff and their families because I'm like, if there's anyone that I want at Taj's birthday, it's, it's our team here who's been with him and celebrating him and getting to know him. And, and Taj is having the opportunity to expand his mind. He's learning Indonesian. He's counts in Indonesian and English and, this will impact who he is in the world, whether he consciously knows it or not this time. And so um, I have so much gratitude for that and for a team who, who've embraced our family and and welcomed us into their, into their community. And um, also just us having the space as a family to figure this all out has been really special. Mm-hmm. And um, it's going to make a big difference in our life and in my marriage, like forever. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Just brings you back to what's most important, right? Yeah. So to close out, what is one message or question that the audience, our audience can reflect on beyond this conversation? Well, we spoke a lot about making an impact, serving the greater good, being your authentic self. And I feel like a lot of people say, well, well, what am I going to do? Like, I feel passionate about a lot of things. And I think a question for you to think about is, well, what breaks your heart? And to think about like, what, what breaks your heart? Because what breaks your heart is probably what's most important to you right now in your life. And then, and look into that and see how you can make an impact in, in that, in that, that breaks your heart. And, and, um, and then, and then focus in on that. And then if there's other things that you're really also passionate about, find other people who are actively doing the work in that and then support them. Because again, you can't do it all. So find your thing and then find the people doing the other things that you're really interested in and help, help elevate their voice and amplify their voice in your work as you move, as you move through life. Because we're all... We're, it, all of our lives look different, but we're often all moving in the same direction and, and we need to support each other in that. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What breaks your heart? I'm going to reflect on that. That's a really good one. Woo, man, I feel full in a really good way. Thanks. Thank me you. too. <laughs> that was really awesome. Thank you so much, Sara, for just the person that you are, but also the work that you're doing. And yeah, just the messages that you spread. I think the world needs it. 
Thank you. So keep on keeping on. Thank you. You guys too. (laughs) And um, thanks so much guys for listening. Um, Definitely see you next time. Again, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you feel uplifted, shifted in any way, um, please again, give us a subscribe, a share or review so we can really amplify these stories out in the world. Thank you so much. See you next time. The Alt Normal. Thanks for tuning in to The Alt Normal. I'm your host, Tiffany Wen, and this show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of dig, seed, grow.